investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome investors to episode 21 of the Absolute Return Podcast. Today is Friday, July 5th, 2019. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Got a number of important topics to talk about on this week's podcast. Off the top, Donald Trump halts additional China tariffs as leaders seek to de-escalate the ongoing trade war. What happened just last week? Group Mock withdraws its $14 per share proposal for Transat. Did Group Mock's bid ever have a chance? Big news in the cannabis space where with perhaps probably, you know, the biggest CEO in the space, Bruce Linton, he actually got fired as a CEO of Canopy Growth. Why was he ousted from the company he founded? Canadian dollar hits an eight month high as Canada swung to a trade surplus last month. Is the loony rally overdone? Lastly, yields on European bonds hit fresh lows as Christine Lagarde nominated to lead the European Central Bank. Why did the market react so favorable favorably to this rumor. We had important news on the trade war front just last weekend with Donald Trump tweeting on Saturday. He stated that he had a great meeting with China's president, President Xi, uh, just uh, the day before Saturday. So one week ago, he said it was far better than he expected. Trump agreed not to increase the already existing tariffs that they charge China while they continue to negotiate. China has agreed that during the negotiation, they'll begin purchasing large amounts of U.S. agricultural products, such as soybeans and other grains. And at the request of U.S. high-tech companies, uh, President Xi has allowed Huawei to buy products from these U.S. entities. In addition, they opened up negotiations with China as the relationship continues to progress, they want to open up additional communication. As you know, the parties haven't spoken in, in quite a while. Uh, each com- country's trade representative want to enter uh, deeper discussions. And so the market really liked this news. They liked what Trump had to say, the dynamic between the leaders of the US and China, the two largest economies. And what this did, uh, the effect was to really ease investors' tension and fears about an all-out trade war progressing and getting worse. So certainly this provide the remedy to ultimately, you know, provide a truce um, to the escalations in the trade war. Not just that, but investors were concerned that lingering frictions could give away to another flare-up when trade tensions and market volatility. As you saw, you know, Trump recently went after Mexico with potentially another trade war, but they resolved that fairly quickly as as Mexico Mexico kind of caved to their demands. Unfortunately, China is not as uh, able to bend as Trump would expect. However, they are indicating they are willing to be flexible here and things are looking up from a trade war perspective, what are your thoughts on these events? Yeah, so in particular with the the agricultural purchases, is I think that this does have some leverage for China on that issue, as the purchase of these products, that really works well politically for Trump with his base. So that's something that resonates with his base. So I, I do think there is some leverage there. 
but as well the ag purchases on, on the whole, although there is some leverage, it's unlikely to change some of the U.S. demands with regards to intellectual property mm -hmm. um, and things of that nature. Like at, currently, um, the U.S. has allowed firms to continue doing business with Huawei, so they've loosened some of those demands. But, but overall, it, it'll be interesting to follow this, but by all measures, this is looking a bit more amicable. Uh, but I, the only thing with the Trump administration is, is that can change very quickly. There could be a tweet tomorrow where Trump just completely derails things. Well, certainly, if he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, then markets could be in for another bout of volatility with any sort of signal of an escalation in the trade war. I wanted to recap on why Trump is pursuing this. So the U.S. and has experienced over the last number of decades uh, slowly and worsening trade deficit with China, where month in and month out, it's just getting larger and larger, where U.S. is purchasing more goods from China and becoming a larger and larger deficit. Now, Trump wants to halt that and reverse that. So he's looking for China to be importing more goods from the U.S. and the U.S. ultimately importing fewer goods from China. You touched on the Huawei issue and you know i guess discussions kind of thawing what trump previously indicated effectively banning huawei from the u.s economy was pretty harsh he's indicating that he'll give them some room however as far as i understand it huawei still will be prevented from selling 5g equipment into the u.s where the bulk of the security concerns lie so ultimately that's what the u.s and other developed nations are concerned about that huawei specifically their 5G equipment, could offer the Chinese government a, pa a backdoor on spying or other sort of espionage uh, activities on foreign countries. Um, so the U.S. really not bending on that perspective. But with the thawing trade negotiations and this uh, truce that we're witnessing here, the market certainly liked it. We're notching new all-time highs, uh, especially yesterday on the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. However, small caps not really getting the love. They're still down 10% from their highs last summer, as shown in the uh, Russell 2000. So domestically focused companies not rallying as much as the large cap global entities that you find in the Dow Jones and the S&P 500. Some news in the M&A mergers and acquisitions space on a story that we have been covering quite regularly over the past number of weeks with respect to the potential bidding war for Transat. As you know, they entered into a friendly agreement with Air Canada to be bought for $13 per share. And then you had this potential interloper, Group Mop, float a $14 cash bid per share publicly. But what happened a couple days ago is that shares in Transat fell 8% on the news that would-be interloper Groupmark is actually withdrawing its $14 per share offer for the airline and travel company. Alfred Bouget, a mock executive, he stated that he was ultimately unhappy with the sale process, adding that Transat would not even be open to discussions regarding the $14 per share offer. He stated, quote, they completely ignored our proposal. Transat and Air Canada really didn't get to talk about it at all, but we have been discussing on the podcast over the past number of weeks. As Group Mock's proposal has been public, we really have been quite skeptical on it. We did not view it as a bona fide offer, and this really proves out our thesis that, look, 
They don't really have any sort of reputation, and they're looking to buy a company for nearly $600 million. So to raise that sort of capital when you don't have it, it's, uh, it's quite difficult. So to come out with what's to be thought of as a competing proposal, if you don't have the money, then it's tough for the board of directors of the target company to take that bid uh, into consideration. And it looks like that is exactly what happened here. A Transat board likely quite skeptical of Group Mock's ability to get the financing, the ability to actually close this deal. So they went with the perceived lower risk Air Canada deal, even though number one, it's at a lower price, and number two, it provides you know substantially more competition, potentially antitrust concerns from a regulatory perspective uh, when it comes to close the deal. What are your thoughts on this M&A situation? Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. Obviously, if Transat viewed this bid as being at all legitimate, they would take it to their board of directors or they would at least be you know, negotiating with Group Mock. But I think that, as you had mentioned, this just kind of proves out that they weren't taking it seriously. I don't, investors were taking it a little bit more seriously. Right, it was um, trading above $14 mm-hmm. at one point. And you mentioned it's interesting that, you know, not only did the board seemingly ignore this, but they didn't even utilize it to try to get a higher price out of Air Canada. Yeah, it, it didn't, you know, I guess investors were, they were hoping that a bidding war would ensue. That's not what happened. Um, the other thing to note was that if the group mock offer was perhaps if they had come to the table and provided a higher bid than their $14 initial bid, there would be a $15 million break fee payable by Transat to Air Canada in that case. But ultimately, no bidding war. Right. And I wanted to touch on a couple of risks with the current friendly Air Canada deal that they did strike. Number one, are you getting pushback from shareholders with respect to the price, the $13 offer per share? Not really happy with it. Large shareholders have complained that Air Canada's offer merely covers the cash on Transat's balance sheet. It ascribes no value for its operating business, which is 40 plane airline and tour division. Number two, as I stated, the competition commissioner will likely try to extract major concessions from the combined company because they do have 40 to 60% market shares in certain routes. They could possibly force it to abandon routes and airport landing rights, or even worse, they could outright block the deal. So those are the two major risks currently baked into the transaction. Some price action transat shares last time I checked were trading around 12.60, which is a 3% discount to Air Canada's $13 offer. So market pricing in perhaps a double digit IRR. So some risk there uh, on closing the deal. Shocking news in the cannabis space with Canopy Growth, which is perhaps the leading uh, cannabis company worldwide. The founder and CEO Bruce Linton was actually fired. And Bruce Linton, he's a very, he's perhaps the public face of the cannabis industry, really an industry cheerleader, started pretty much the first public cannabis company in the industry. He was terminated as CEO amidst increasing losses at the company. Bruce uh, Linton, he started the company Canopy Growth in 2013. He was also removed as chairman of the company. Now, the decision to fire him was driven by the controlling shareholder of Canopy, Constellation Brands. So they invested $5 billion in Canopy growth less than one year ago. With that $5 billion, Constellation now owns 38% of the company, plus they control the board of directors. 
And ironically, it was Linton who brought in Constellation as the investors. So he effectively, you know, kind of, kind of wrote his his own uh, obituary there. But what was really interesting about this is that this announcement it actually followed recent public criticism from Constellation CEO Bill Newlands, who is also a Canopy Growth board member, who just last week stated on a conference call that he wasn't pleased with Canopy Growth's recent results. Now, Constellation wanted to put the brakes on Canopy's acquisition streak and focus more on operational efficiency and profitability. Canopy last month reported a quarterly loss of over $300 million, which was way beyond uh, analyst expectations. So they really had quite the poor fourth quarter. I mean, this was compared to a loss of around 50 million uh, a year ago. So Constellation clearly getting frustrated with uh, losses of nearly sixfold over $300 million just in the quarter. Not just that, but their stock price has fallen 26% since April. Uh, So a couple negative results there. Uh, Constellation stock also took a hit in June when the brewer said it would book a quarterly loss of 78 million related to its share of Canopy's results. So what you have here is Constellation having to answer for their own frustrated shareholders on why this Canopy growth investment isn't turning out well while they're having to book losses on their investment with the stock going down, book losses in their P&L with the company notching much larger than expected operating losses. And that continued to expand in the future. So ultimately, Constellation saying enough is enough. We got to kind of stem the bleeding here. We got to take this in a new direction. And ultimately, what happened to Linton was effectively foreshadowed on Constellation's recent conference call where they indicated that they weren't happy. I was really shocked. You never really hear a company make uh, a very large multi-billion dollar investment and shortly thereafter publicly rebuke the CEO. So what are your thoughts on this interesting cannabis situation? Yeah, it's it's really interesting just with regards to the timing as there have been a, a couple of profiles in the media of Bruce Linton lately. So he was getting some good press and then everything with Constellation a couple weeks ago. Um, obviously, that was unfavorable for him. But really, he's making out of this in a very fine situation. He's made over $200 million, I believe, from his investment in Canopy. And as well, since he was fired, all his unvested stock options, they fully vested for him. So he was able to keep those. So he's in a good situation. What's interesting is where he'll go from here is he does have a non-compete clause, so which prevents him from working um, with any rival Canadian cannabis players, which is interesting because that might leave the door open for any international players that, that uh, he could be involved with. But the shares of a, of a small software company that he is, I believe he's the co-chairman yeah. and former CEO, Martello Technologies, on the news when he was fired on Wednesday, they actually increased about 89%. Um, so they, there's obviously some speculation that he'll become involved with more involved with that company and that would really fit into his background is he he has a technology background it was really just with canopy was his really 
his only foray outside of the technology sector. For sure, and he certainly has made investors a lot of money here. I believe Canopy growth is trading what around the $50 range. Mm -hmm. And when it came public a number of years ago, probably in the 2013, 2014, it was in the low single digit dollar range. So investors, especially the early stage investors have done very well. Can't really say the same about uh, later stage investors such as Constellation, perhaps booking some losses on their investment, hoping to turn that around. But Linton, as you said, was doing a lot of press over the past couple days, really defending his management style. Got a quote from him here. He stated, the way the company operates is an aggressive entrepreneurial company, not managing for profit at this point, but managing for market share and growth. So there you have it. That was ultimately his strategy. And Constellation wanted to take the company in a different direction, managing them more for profitability and doing less uh, acquisitions. Got a quote from the Macquarie analyst, Carolyn Levy. She indicated that the departure of Mr. Linton is indicative of the fact that the losses Canopy's experience are getting out of control. Now, Linton, as you stated, he owns about $200 million worth of stock. He did state publicly that he plans on uh, keeping the vast majority of it, which I thought was interesting. He indicated his thesis was that the stock will do very well, especially uh, if or when the U.S. It goes on to legally legalize cannabis. So ultimately, that's where he's sticking around, obviously, as really the industry cheerleader and the face of the cannabis industry, I think ultimately we will see more of him from the future. As you stated, not from a Canadian company, but perhaps uh, an international cannabis producer. When one thing that you mentioned yeah, is that he likes being the cheerleader and something that he mentioned in one of his interviews was that you know he really likes the idea of being a CEO for having the microphones, the meetings, the business cards, I think were his exact words. So you'll definitely see him with another company. Wanted to touch on some currency, some FX action. So the loony, the Canadian dollar recently hit an eight month high as Canada swung to an unexpected trade surplus in May. Getting into the numbers here, Canada posted a 762 million trade surplus for the month versus expectations of a deficit of 1.5 billion. So pretty massive beat of expectations on that figure. Now this surplus came from rising exports of motor vehicles, aircraft and energy products. So we're starting to see a slow recovery in the energy industry. Now the loony, the Canadian dollar, has benefited in recent weeks from data showing a recovery in the domestic economy, which could keep the Bank of Canada on hold over the coming months, even if the Fed, the Federal Reserve, cuts its interest rates as the market expects. I think the market is pricing in a nearly certain cut in July this month from the Fed. However, the market is pricing in only a 30% chance of a Bank of Canada interest rate cut this year. So that's why you're seeing the loony rally via the uh, versus the U.S. dollar. Some analysts and economists thinking that it could re the, reach the 80 cent range up from uh, 76 and change here. But ultimately, the Bank of Canada does not want to see the loony rally that much versus the U.S. dollar. And ultimately, as the largest trading partner, they're sensitive to uh, you know the Canadian economy, and they don't want the loony to rally too much. What are your thoughts on this price action and the economic action on the uh, Canadian side? 
Yeah, so there was also a little bit, of, so you'd mentioned the rally, there was a slight pullback this morning after a surprise jobs decline. I believe they were down about 2,000 jobs uh, were lost in June. When you look beyond the headline, it actually the news actually wasn't that bad. And even, even still, that's you know close to even on the month. But there was actually a gain of 24,000 full-time jobs, while jobs or part-time jobs actually decreased by 26,000. So you still did see some fairly strong growth on the full-time side which is arguably, you could make the argument that that is more important than the part-time jobs lost. Um, as well as unemployment, it edged up slightly from 5.4% to 5.5%. But overall, looking beyond just the headlines of those jobs numbers, they're actually quite strong. And wage wages, I believe, were increasing substantially as well. So overall, it's looking quite strong from the... Uh, from the Canadian economic perspective, at least in the short term here. Right, and, and the Canadian dollar really has been range-bound pretty much since 2015, after we had the large decline. Uh, you had a big bear market in oil coming off 2014. So ever since 2015, it's kind of been in the uh, you know 1.3 USD per CAD range. And you know it's still within that. We're not really seeing a breakout, perhaps we could, but ultimately, analysts and economists are speculating that if we did see a breakout that the Bank of Canada would be pretty keen on halting that as to not damage the domestic economy. Getting into a bit more global macro with yields on European bonds absolutely plunging to pretty much new all-time lows as Christine Lagarde is nominated to lead the European Central Bank. Now, Christine Lagarde, she's had a pretty storied career. She's currently the managing director of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. She's been nominated to become the next president of the ECB, the European Central Bank. She has led the IMF since 2011, and she would seek to su succeed uh, Mario Draghi at the ECB. Now, Draghi has been famously quite dovish, and if you remember back in, I believe, 20, between 2013 and 2015, back when you had that big euro crisis, yields skyrocketing, I believe, Greek yields back in the Grexit talk days got close to 40%. Even Italian long-term bonds were in the 7 to 8% range, Portugal you had all these yield spreads really blowing out. So remember Draghi had that famous do whatever it takes to keep the euro together speech, went on to implement quantitative easing and all sorts of very easy monetary policies throughout the eurozone, which clearly has been successful. However, the European economy has been struggling with, with sluggish growth basically ever since the 0809 credit crisis. They're struggling with sluggish growth Low inflation, for example, growth in the European manufacturing sector deteriorated for a fifth straight month in June. Last month, Draghi said the ECB would announce further stimulus if the region's economic situation further deteriorated. Now, one of Europe's biggest problems is that weakness is driven by factors beyond the ECB's control, including a drop in demand in exports, driven by this big trade war between the US and China, which is kind of affecting everyone globally. Some price action on these rumors or Christine Lagarde 
getting nominated, the FTSE 100, which is uh, one of the big indices in the UK, it closed up uh, nearly a percent on the news as the market expects that Lagarde would implement fresh stimulus package to boost the European economy. There is speculation that she would perhaps implement QE2. She's wildly regarded as being quite dovish perhaps even more so than Draghi. And by dovish, we mean someone who would be likely to ease monetary policy, like to have easy money and see markets go up. Certainly not a uh, hawkish central banker by any stretch of the imagination. Getting into more shocking market action, as we previously indicated in the, in the title that we're seeing bond yields throughout Europe really plum plummeting to new all-time lows. Some numbers on European two-year bond yields, we look at Spain negative 0.46%, Portugal negative 0.5%, even Italy in the negative range, negative five basis points. Then we have France and Germany at negative 0.7% and negative 0.7% respectively. Really just craziness in the European bond market for over two years. You're expected to lose money to lend these governments your money. What are your thoughts on the price action here and all the speculation with respect to Christine Lagarde as the new president of the ECB? Yeah, one other thing that I wanted to mention was you had talked about some of the issues in, in Europe are beyond their, their control. And another example of that was just recently the U.S. threats of $4 billion worth of tariffs. That just was another thing that's stoking stoking fears of an economic slowdown. And so in terms of like how market participants are viewing things, is you're seeing in most recently a really strong rally in German and French um, assets, um, government assets as well. And that's really just kind of a, a perceived move to safe haven assets. Right. As well, in terms of actual actions expected by the ECB, uh, it's expected that they're likely to cut the deposit rate for banks uh, by 10 basis points to negative 0.5% uh, in September. And as you had mentioned with Christine Lagarde coming in, that there will likely be further asset purchases, at least staying status quo, if not going beyond that. So everything is, well, looking towards lower lower European bonds from here. Lower for longer, as has been the theme for pretty much the past 10 years. I find it ironic you touched on this sort of migration to safe assets, but if we go back, say, six years, in the depths of the uh, euro crisis, we had absolutely skyrocketing yields. And when we talk about yields plummeting right now that means a big rally in bond prices bond prices of course move opposite to bond yields but but back then half a dozen years ago you had skyrocketing bond yields as investors really got spooked they got spooked out of greek bonds they got spooked out of portuguese bonds and even italian bonds as i indicated were i believe in the seven to eight percent range now all of those going to near zero or even negative which is just really shocking turn events especially when you consider that you know the eurozone really hasn't turned around you're still having incredibly sluggish growth i did recently look at a graph of um, the european stock index uh, EPS earnings per share and it actually hasn't even recovered to where it was pre-credit crisis so even back 10 years ago I believe 
uh, earnings per share of the equity index is quite below that. Contrast that to the U.S., where you had a big recovery in the market and earnings per share of American corporations. But ultimately, you know, does Lagarde have a lot of tools here if she is to become the new president of the ECB? As we indicated, a lot of this, you know, is caused by events outside of their control being majorly this trade war, not just that, but there are kind of more structural issues such as, you know, massive deficits in, in each country and, and you're having political issues, you're having demographic issues, obviously European nations are getting older, less productive, and really have seen multiple uh, recessions in each individual country, you know. Greek, Greece still really hasn't recovered since 0809, has had massive declines in uh, GDP. Uh, clearly, they're not in that depression uh, that they were in a number of years ago, but really haven't seen much recovery yet, a big decline, sort of flatline. You're seeing the same thing in Italy, which is one of Europe's largest countries. Got an interesting quote from the Evacor analyst. He indicated that Lagarde would be expected to lean broadly dovish on monetary policy while pressing fiscal authorities to play a more active role in promoting Eurozone growth. Specifically, we think she would back what we expect will be one last big dovish play from Draghi in September which is an easing package that includes both a 10 to 15 basis point rate cut, so that's 0.1 to 0.5%, and a new QE program at around 30 billion euro per month of bond purchases. What's interesting, um, the other thing that is causing uh, European bond prices to rally yields to plummet is that you take Germany, for example, their two-year bond is currently yielding negative 0.75%. So not only are you losing money on a nominal basis, but even more when you take inflation into account. Because I believe inflation, it's not zero in Europe. It's kind of in the 1% level, not where they want it, but certainly not deflationary. But Germany, they are actually quite fiscally prudent. And they, and contrast this to the U.S., Germany actually runs uh, surpluses, budget surpluses. Unlike the U.S., the U.S. is running massive deficits and they're funding this by issuing treasuries. And so the treasury market is very large and you have yields in the U.S. at around 2%. Then contrast that to Europe with Germany running, you know, not much for deficits. There isn't very much German paper out there. There's not a lot of German bonds for the ECB to buy in their QE program. And I believe a large portion of German bonds have been, you know, been bought by the central banks and there's really not much supply left. And you know what happens when demand exceeds supply and then prices go up. And that's really the dynamic that we're seeing here. People are just running out of bonds to buy throughout Europe. You're seeing prices increasing and then yields ultimately decreasing to what, in my opinion, are ridiculous levels throughout two years, all negative across the board and seemingly getting even more so negative. So that wraps it up for episode 21 of the Absolute Return podcast. You can check out more on absolutereturnpodcast.com. If you like it, please leave us a review and we'll chat with you next week. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. 
Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at AccelerateShares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.